book of Matthew this morning. And would you stand one last time with me? We honor God's word when it is read here because this is, it's he who's speaking to us. We're in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. If you're following along in the Pew Bible this morning, that's going to be page 814. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it. Stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, open our eyes this morning to see your word clearly. Let our ears be tuned in. And God, as I prayed earlier, if you are calling us to go, send us. And I pray this morning that all of us, every one of us, would hear your call to be faithful to you this morning. And that we would see in your word what that looks like. What it looks like to live in obedience to the king who's called us into his kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have a a red letter Bible this morning, you will notice that the next few pages in your Bible have a lot of red in them. I don't. I have one that's all God's word. It's all black and white. But... But if you do have a red one, this is, this is, we're entering a section of your Bible that is, is very red. And one of the clues that Matthew has given us, that there is about to be some teaching from Jesus, there's about to be some red letters, is a clue that we see in verse 35 as we begin our text this morning. Look at verse 35 with me. 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. Now, we've seen this exact verse before. I don't know if you remember this. Back in, in chapter 4, if you've been with us throughout our study in Matthew, in chapter 4, right before an extended period of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, again, a lot of red letters, we saw the same verse. In Matthew four twenty three, Matthew said, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Almost verbatim. Almost exactly the same as he's just telling us here in chapter 9. You see how similar those two statements are? Well, and remember in chapter 5, right after Matthew had told us about what Jesus was doing, teaching and healing, Jesus goes on a mountainside and he teaches that those who belong to the kingdom are to be like this. And then he shares with us that Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes and all that. And then just like Jesus said, Jesus taught. And then after the Sermon on the Mount, he comes down and he works. He heals. He raises people from the dead. He, he verifies his teaching. And so here we have this statement again. This is what Jesus is up to. He's teaching. And then after that, he's going to prove the validity of his teaching. And so we get this statement. Think of it like, like a flag that Matthew is waving that more teaching and more miracles are coming. So when he says something like this, more teaching and more miracles are coming our way. But here, it's not just that Jesus was going through the cities and villages and teaching and proclaiming the gospel and healing. Here, at the end of chapter 9, Matthew adds to what he had told us in chapter 4. Look at verse 36. This is sort of a, 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 a passage that Matthew gives us to move the story along. So it just doesn't keep repeating itself in an endless loop, teaching and healing and teaching and healing. This moves the story along. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The, the crowds that Jesus is looking at, this is, this is the people of Israel Jesus looks at them and he feels this gut-wrenching pain for his people. Now, now, if you've been studying Matthew with us, you haven't seen this yet. You haven't seen this compassion of our Savior. The, the, the word that, that Matthew uses, it's, he feels it in his kidneys. It, it is the word that, that, that we just don't have a word for that, that he would have used then. We haven't seen this in Jesus, though. We've seen him heal. We've seen him comfort people. But what's going on in his heart, Matthew hasn't exposed that for us yet. And this is really important. Because this compassion of Christ, this is the driving motive behind his entire ministry. And now we get to see it. This compassion. These are God's people. So he's looking at God's people and these people, as we saw in Ezekiel in our reading, they're supposed to have caretakers. They're, they're supposed to have priests and teachers who will guide them spiritually. They're supposed to have a king. A king who's living in obedience to God, who's defending his people from outside attack. But Israel doesn't have that. What do they have instead? Matthew says the sheep, the people of God were harassed and helpless. They have nothing. Harassed and helpless. Sheep that are harassed and helpless are those that are under attack. There's nobody to help them. 
There's no one to protect them. They're defenseless prey for the taking. And so Jesus looks at the people of God and he feels this deep, deep discomfort all the way to the core of who he is. He deeply hurts for his people. I just want to tell you something this morning, Sarah. I know we've just begun. That compassion that Jesus Christ has for his people, that compassion of our Savior never changes. It never, never changes. That, that compassion that Jesus had for his sheep then when he looked out over his people, that continues today. Oftentimes when you and I, when we see the lostness of the lost, when we see lost people acting like lost people, what is our response? Just think about how we compare ourselves or how we compare to Christ here. What's our response when we, someone, when we see somebody caught in sin that disgusts us? Do we, do we hurt for them or do we feel superior to them? Maybe we feel self-righteous, and so we respond with hatred towards them. We look down on them. Or maybe just as bad, we're just indifferent toward them, right? That's their truth. They're living their truth. They can do what they want. That's their choice. Jesus, though, he looks at the lost who belong to the Father, and he has compassion for them. The chosen people of God are without a leader. The Pharisees and the religious people, these guys who were supposed to lead God's people, they're totally failing. Totally failing. And here is the shepherd king that we read about in Ezekiel, and he's come to shepherd the flock of Israel back into the safety, back into the peace of God. But you get this sense. You get this sense in the text this morning that this job is too great for one man. Don't you? Things are a mess. They're an absolute mess. The sheep are scattered all over the place. And gathering them in is more than Jesus can do alone. So because of his compassion for his people, don't miss that. Everything that comes from here on to the rest of this lesson this morning from God's word... All of it is rooted in Christ's compassion for his people. Everything flows out of his compassion for the people. If there's a main point in this morning's text, that's it. All that Jesus does and says is an outworking of his compassion for his people. Every laborer he has ever called to do his work, he has called because of the compassion he has for his lost sheep. Jesus loves his sheep. He will die for his sheep. He will send apostles and evangelists and missionaries and pastors and teachers to call his sheep to himself. He's compelled and moved by his love and his compassion. That's who he is. So don't miss that this morning. It's just a short verse, but it is the foundation of the rest of what we're about to read. So let's continue now. Look at verse 37. Because of his compassion, Jesus turns to his disciples 
And what we'd expect to see here, what we'd expect to see is that he's going to say something like, help me gather my sheep, right? Because he's just said he sees sheep without a shepherd, and he's the shepherd. So you would think he's going to say, help me gather my sheep. Or, or maybe he might even say, all right, disciples, I called you as to be fishers of men. So fish. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, help me shepherd. That will come later. And he doesn't say time to fish for men. In fact, you will never again see him say, fishers of men. Look at what Jesus says in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This isn't fishing. This isn't shepherding. This is harvesting a crop. Now, now why a crop? Why did he change metaphors? Well, for one, a crop ready to be harvested is a crop that was planted. There has been a great deal of work that's already occurred in Israel. Somebody plowed the field. Somebody planted the field. Somebody watered the field. And now the crops are ripe and they're ready to be brought in. When John records this telling of what Jesus has said here, he tells us in John 4.38, Jesus is talking about this harvest and he says, I sent you to reap. That is harvest. I sent you to reap for that which you did not even labor. Others have labored. You've entered in to that labor. So, so Jesus is referring back, talking about the work of the prophets. Long, 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 long ago. They announced the coming Messiah long ago. They prophesied of the coming day when the king would come and the kingdom would be restored. And those prophets labored and they labored and they saw no harvest they if you read jeremiah you read isaiah they just have this weight on them if you read about elijah's work they're speaking to deaf ears constantly well then god sent john the baptist the next prophet to prepare the land for harvest. And what was his message? You remember John the Baptist's message? Repent for the kingdom is near. He made the way for the Lord. And then Jesus arrives on scene and by every measure that we've seen, he's clearly the promised king. Right? He's announcing the coming kingdom. And he's proving the arrival of the kingdom with these signs and miracles. The work has been established. The harvest is ready. The people are ready to be pointed to the coming kingdom. That's why he used harvest imagery. The, the second thing that I think this harvest imagery gives us is that there's a sense of urgency here. There's an urgency that Christ wants to communicate to his disciples. Think, think about what's going on here. Right now, as Jesus is speaking, the promised king is among his people. He's there. The shepherd king is at that very moment among the lost sheep of Israel and they absolutely have to be told right then that he's here or they'll miss him. Now is their chance to repent and believe. Harvests are urgent, aren't they? Harvests are urgent. There's this little window of time when the fruit or the grain or whatever it is has to be harvested. The next day it could spoil. The next day it could be eaten by birds or by beasts or by bugs. There's this urgency 
to the harvest. And Jesus wants to communicate that urgency to disciples. And that's why he says, the harvest is plentiful. The, the workers are few. We don't want the crop to spoil. There's, now, you've heard this metaphor before, right? I mean, we have harvest, harvest crusades. We use this language a lot when it comes to Christian evangelism. But here's something I think we, that we miss sometimes about this metaphor that Jesus is using. This ripe harvest that Jesus is talking about, this is very specific to the people of Israel at this point in history. We're going to see in a minute that in his first sending, or that first part of chapter 10, Jesus is even going to limit the scope of the disciples' mission. Do you see that when we read it? Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Stay right here in this field because this field is the one that's ready for harvest. This field is the one that has been worked on for hundreds and hundreds of years all the way up to this point. So here's the thing that we need to see about this metaphor. Not every crop is ripe for harvest. Not all work on God's behalf is harvest work. You know what I mean by that? Missionaries, think about this. Missionaries sent out to do groundbreaking missionary work often work for decades, decades, and get little to no harvest at all. Do you know how many people received the gospel of Jesus Christ during Adoniram Judson's first 12 years of ministry in Burma? 18 people. 18. After 12 years of tilling and planting and watering, after 12 years of watching God work, there's a harvest of 18 people. Do you know how many people were converted to Christianity as a result of Robert Morrison's 25 years of mission work in China? 25 years, 10 people. He translated the entire Bible into their language, and 10 people came to know Christ as their Lord. 25 years. Do you know how many people came to Christ as a result of David Livingston's mission work in Africa? One man. One man was baptized after 10 years of work. Hudson's Taylor, Hudson Taylor's church in China, after all his work and sacrifice, the end of his time there, before he died, the church had 21 people in it. It's not what we call fields ripe for harvest. Not all mission work is harvest work. Compare that, compare that to, to Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. All he does is get up and proclaim the word of God, and what happens? 3,000 people were added to the kingdom in one day. And just a couple days later, he preaches again, and 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children come to know Christ as their Savior. That's a harvest. That's a harvest. Or, or compare those early missionary efforts in China to what's happening in China right now or what's happening in Iran right now. People are coming to faith not by the tens and twenties over decades, but by the hundreds and thousands over the course of a year. Churches are growing faster than churches can train leaders. 
What do we make of this? Well, we don't control the Lord's timing, friends. The disciples being sent by Jesus Christ were sent into a harvest that they didn't labor for. They followed the work of John the Baptist, who was very soon to lose his head. John's work came after years of spiritual silence. Nothing from God had been heard by the people. That silence came after the very trying and immensely difficult labor of the prophets. The field of work that is in front of you or in front of us as a church, there's no guarantee that it's a harvest. We could be called to pull weeds and pick up rocks out of the field. A field that's nowhere near ready to be tilled, let alone planted. And it could be nowhere near harvest. So friends, we aren't always called to harvest as the disciples were here in this passage. But we are called to obedience. We are called to faithfulness. This is hard for us, isn't it? As Americans, isn't this hard? We want what? Immediate gratification. This is what we want to see. We invented fast food. We want to tell someone the gospel and then immediately have them pray a prayer of salvation and then immediately baptize them and then go on to the next person so we can do it again, so we can get numbers. That's why we have harvest crusades and scheduled revivals. Can you believe that we do this? We schedule the work of the Holy Spirit. We schedule revivals. We want to see progress. We want to see numbers. We want to see measurable growth. In our arrogance, we believe that we have the right to see Pentecost happening all over again. All over the place, everywhere we go. Because we want to be seen as effective. That's, that's self-aggrandizing, isn't it? It's presumptuous. We forget that it's not our field that we're working in. It's not our crop. It doesn't belong to us. We're just laborers. We work for the Lord. We work for the Lord. All you're called to is faithfulness when you work for the Lord. We work according to His timing. We work according to His plan. So listen, wherever the Lord puts you, you're called to faithfulness. You're called to obedience. You work for His glory. Amen? And he is glorified in whatever labor he's calling you to do when you do it. Even if there will be no harvest for a hundred years in what we're doing as a church right now, we need to know that our work for him is not in vain. To him, a hundred years is nothing. It's his crop. It's his harvest. You and I shouldn't be looking for any credit whatsoever for what the Lord is doing. And neither should we be discouraged. We shouldn't be discouraged when there isn't a rich harvest. We're laborers. We're called to be faithful laborers. We're called to be obedient. Well, what does that faithfulness look like? Look at verse 38 with me. In verse 38, Jesus teaches us about this faithfulness. Faithfulness begins with something we overlook. What is it? Look at verse 38. It begins with prayer. Pray earnestly. 
If you have the NIV, it says, ask the Lord. No, it's pray earnestly. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is looking at his lost sheep. He sees their need. He sees them at that very moment that they're just like a crop that must be brought in because they're ripe for the harvest. And he sees that the laborers are few, and he's got these disciples with him. And so what would you expect Jesus to say? Go get them, right? Go get them. Instead, what does he do? He says, pray. Pray. Why prayer? We see clearly there's work to be done. But he says, pray. The crops are ripe for harvest, and all we have to do is pluck them. And he just says, but pray. Why? Let me me read for you what, what David Platt says about this verse. He asks the question that we're asking, or at least that I'm asking. He says, why do you think Jesus would look at the crowds around him with all their deep needs and then turn to his disciples and tell them to pray? The answer is humbling. When Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless multitudes, apparently his concern was not that the lost would not come to the Father. Instead, his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. concern was that his followers wouldn't go. So why does Jesus instruct his disciples to pray? For the laborers? Because without prayer, without prayer, even when we see the need, we won't go. Remember, what's our response when we see people who are lost? Judgment and apathy, right? Self-righteousness and apathy. That's the natural response of the flesh toward the mission of God. Jesus is telling disciples to seek the Lord in prayer for laborers because a prayer like that will align the heart of Christ's disciples with his mission. It will align. When you pray to God, Align myself with your mission. Do you know what God does? He answers your prayer. He answers your prayer. Hearts that are aligned with the mission of God will then respond in obedience to the call of God. Through prayer, the disciples are joining in to God's desires for his people. That's what you and I are doing when we pray for the lost. We are aligning our hearts with God's heart. Our desires are being transformed. We're being changed by the Spirit working in us when we do that. We're humbled to nothing and our heart becomes compassionate. That's not natural for you or me. That's spiritual work. That's the work of the Spirit in you. If you aren't praying for the lost, you will not have the Lord's compassion for them. You won't. If you aren't praying for them, you will miss opportunities to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Prayer is the beginning of every evangelistic effort from Christians. Because prayer aligns our motives to God's motives. And what is God's motive? Compassion. 
Remember I said everything flows from Christ's compassion. Jesus tells his disciples to pray for laborers and harvest, and then look at what he does in 10, verse 1. So we're on to chapter 10 now, verse 1. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over the unclean spirits to heal. He calls the disciples to be those laborers that he just said he needed, and then he equips them for the work that he's given them to do. He calls them to himself, and he gives them the authority that they need, the authority that he has. Jesus, the Messiah King, has been given authority. Now he takes that and he gives that to these 12 men. And then in verses 2 through 4, Matthew tells us, well, who are these 12 guys? Because so far we've only learned about the four plus Matthew. There's seven more that he tells us about. We, we read their names a little bit ago. And all I want to say about these guys is if there's anything remarkable about this group of 12 men, it's this. There's nothing remarkable about these 12 men. None of them are renowned orators. None of them are highly educated. None of them are famous businessmen. None of them are political leaders. None of them has any power or influence. None of them even have connections to people of high power. They're just ordinary men. And they honestly, if you look at that list, you're going to see between a zealot and a tax collector, these guys have no business even being in the same room together outside of Jesus' calling on their life. Something else you need to know about the twelve here is that they are being sent out as the new leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus himself, as we saw in Matthew 2, is the true Israel. And so he's reestablishing what the new kingdom will look like with these 12 men. He even says in Matthew 19, 28, that those who followed him will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why there's 12 of them. Okay, I've heard it before. That 12 is this like ideal number for discipleship. Have you heard that? Like it's a magic number in sociology that, that one man can have influence over only really 12 guys. He can, he can only really have 12 friends and three close friends. Have you heard this before? Listen, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. I don't care. Please don't think that that is the point of why he called 12 men. That the 12 disciples are significant, not for some mamsy-pamsy, pop-psycho-babble reason that Jesus, the great businessman leader, had somehow clued into. All right, this is the Bible. This is the redemptive plan of God. God is reconciling all things to himself. He's undoing the curse. This isn't a book on leadership from the clearance rack at the airport. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of heaven, not a tech startup, right? He's beginning with the reconstituting of Israel. That's why there's 12 men. Rant done, okay? So here's the king. He's coming to the land. He's, he's coming to the land as king, and as signs of the new kingdom is breaking in, what did King Jesus do? He, he did the things that Isaiah And the prophet said the king would do when he came. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, and he gave sight to the blind. Now he's calling in his 12 disciples 
to go out and announce the coming of that kingdom that he came to bring. And so what does he do to show their legitimacy as his disciples, as his heralds of the coming kingdom? Well, he gives them the authority to do the things that he was doing that show that the kingdom is there. Right? That's why they're given the authority to heal and cast out demons and diseases and heal afflictions. They're equipped for the mission that they're sent on. Well, what's their mission? In verses 5 and 6, they go to the lost sheep of Israel and only the lost sheep of Israel. The rest will come later. All right, Even in next week, we'll see that they are going to Gentiles eventually. But for now, at the beginning, they go to Israel. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is coming and it spreads from Israel outward. Jesus is the kingly son of David. Who's David? He's Israel's king. So who are the representatives of the king supposed to go to? Well, they go to the people who are supposed to give allegiance to the king. Right? That's Israel. That, that, that allegiance isn't expected yet of the Samaritans and the Gentiles. That's coming. It is expected of Israel. Because they're the ones that the promises came to. They're the ones to whom the promise of this coming Messiah, Savior, was given. In verse 7, they're told, just do what John the Baptist did, right? Just do what John the Baptist did. Jesus says, do do what I did. What do they do? Announce this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's their mission. That's their message. And again, like I said, as a sign, as proof that that message is true, they're given these, these healing abilities. Now, I just want us to pause here and put our thinking caps on, okay? We can do that. This is the Bible. This is communicated to us reasonably and rationally. So let's think about it. We already know from what Jesus has told us so far that we are to align ourselves with God's mission, right? That's our responsibility as his people, as Christians. We already know that we are to be compelled and driven by his compassion for the lost, We already know that we're to pray for his mission. We are to make ourselves available to be used by him. All of that is true of us who are Christians here in this room today in the same way that it was true of those apostles to whom Jesus is speaking. And it's also true that for whatever God calls us to, he's going to equip us. He will. The Lord, through the Spirit, equips the church for whatever and wherever the church is to go. But here's what we need to see. All right? The equipping that we have received doesn't look exactly like what the equipping the disciples receive, the apostles receive right here in this passage. Our mission is different, isn't it? The apostles in this section are not to tell people because they don't know it yet, Jesus died for your sins. That's not their message. They're telling people the kingdom is near. And rightfully so. The signs that accompany the message of the disciples are going to be different than the signs that accompany our message. Does that make sense? We are equipped with the necessary stuff to go on our mission. So what we must see in Matthew 10 is that the Messiah is commissioning heralds of this kingdom and giving them the authority to work on his behalf. 
They are given that ability to do these miraculous signs. And how do we know today, though, that Jesus is the Messiah? The people in those days needed to see these signs and miracles to know that Jesus is the Messiah. How do we know today that Jesus is the Messiah? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. All right? So just track with me. We are equipped by the Holy Spirit to take the message of a crucified and risen Savior. That's our mission. And just like the disciples had everything that they needed, we've been given everything we need to verify our message. Our message, which just flows out of what the disciples had, they had the beginning, they had Christmas, we have Easter. Our message is that Jesus has come, that he died on a cross to atone for our sins, and then he was resurrected. And that new creation life begins with him. So when we trust in Christ, when we die to our old self-seeking self, when we lay down our desire to make much of ourselves, then we are raised up to make much of Jesus Christ. We become a part then of that new creation reality that Christ initiated his resurrection. And that new creation life in us is the sign of the coming kingdom for us. That's what we're to show to the world around us. Jesus is Savior. He's he's a risen Savior. And a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit, that is the visible reality that accompanies the message of a crucified and risen Savior. All right, I'm going to say that again because that's a mouthful. A life that bears the fruit of the Spirit is the visible reality, the sign that accompanies the message of a crucified and risen Savior. That's the new covenant that Christ brought. That's the new covenant being shown in the life of a Christian. That's the sign that you are equipped with. And in the same way that the disciples would not have been believed by anyone if they didn't have the signs of the coming kingdom, and trust me, many people didn't believe them anyway. You and I will not be believed to have been saved by Jesus Christ if we don't have the signs of salvation. If we don't have the signs of new covenant life. How can we tell someone about what new life in Christ looks like today if we aren't living a new life in Christ? How can we say, Jesus Christ died for your sins if we're still living a life totally characterized by sin? We can't. The sign accompanies the message. That has not changed since this day. When Christ sent his disciples out. You and I have been equipped for the work that Christ has called us to. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus gives the disciples these kind of of unusual instructions, right? If you're reading this, I mean, no sandals, Jesus? One pair of underwear? This is unusual. Right? But, but this, this can be summed up with, with this. This is basically what he's saying. Don't profit from what you're doing. Trust God and travel light. 
Don't profit, trust God, and travel light. Ultimately, the disciples are doing this so that they can model for others what trusting in the Father to provide looks like. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? How, how many times was Jesus telling us in the Sermon on the Mount, trust in me. Trust in me to provide. Don't be anxious about the worldly things. Trust in me. And so these disciples, these apostles, the first sent ones, are asked to show visibly that you're trusting in the Father. The lack of material possessions that these men carry with them is to be a reminder to their hearers that these men are not doing this to get wealthy. They're barefoot. They don't even carry a staff or a bag with them. They're, not, they're clearly not doing this to get wealthy. The laborers of the Lord are to be strikingly different than those who labor for themselves. These men aren't pursuing comfort. They're not accumulating wealth. They're not pursuing joy or satisfaction in the things of the earth. Not at all. They are marked by the one true thing and one thing only. That their mission is to announce the message of the king and they're to take all joy and satisfaction in that. They get to be his laborers. That's a joy. I find it a joy to labor on behalf of Jesus Christ and proclaiming his word to you. Doesn't mean don't stop paying me. Right. <laughs> they're, they're not pursuing joy or satisfaction in things of the earth. They're marked by their message. And they're bent on proclaiming that true joy is found in Christ. True joy is found in Christ. That's what they're to tell people. And everything in their lives, all the way down to the shoes that they wear, is supposed to show that truth. That what they are wearing or not wearing is indicative of their mission. They only take what they need. Those serving the Lord as his laborers are to model for other Christians what a right attitude towards money and possessions is. That's what they're doing. So finally, we come full circle back to the beginning. Because the Lord's laborers are working in his field, they're to trust in his sovereignty. It's what verses 11 through 15 are all about. Look at verse 14 especially. When you go, when you go into these towns, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. If the apostles are rejected, then Jesus is telling them you're going to be rejected. So if and when you're rejected, they simply leave that town Shake the dust off their feet. And then what? Let God be the judge. What's our temptation when someone disagrees with us? No. We don't want to let God be the judge. We want to be the judge. We want to take care of it right then. We want to argue with them. Jesus says, walk away. Just, just walk away. God will take care of the rest. It's his mission. It doesn't rely, everything doesn't rely on you, apostle. It's his mission. Christian, it's his mission. It's his field. You are his laborer. So what these guys are called to do is just be faithful to what they're asked to do, and that's it. And when it doesn't seem to be working out, just leave. 
Jesus says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's, that's weighty. If you know Genesis, you know Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you don't, you've probably heard some of these words before. Sodom and Gomorrah horrendously rejected two messengers sent from God. And they, just didn't, they didn't just reject them. They tried to violate them. They tried to assault them. It was so bad that the angels, these messengers that were sent, had to blind the townspeople and scurry their, their host family, Lot and his wife, out of the town. They were afraid of what would happen. And then the judgment came. God rained down fire on these cities and destroyed everything. Moses tells us in Genesis that even every living thing on the ground was destroyed. Every little blade of grass was destroyed at this judgment. And Jesus is saying, if a city rejects your message, apostles, it is an offense deserving greater judgment than that. How's that? Because rejecting the disciples is rejecting King Jesus. Rejecting the disciples is rejecting the king and his kingdom. When you've heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then you've rejected it, you have to understand you're not just rejecting an idea. You're not just rejecting some philosophy. It's not just a a moral framework that you're saying no to. It's not a movement that you're saying no to. Rejecting the good news of the coming king is rejecting the king himself. That's why that judgment is greater. I'm going to tell you this morning, if if you're here as an unbeliever this morning. When you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, death for your sins, and then you choose to cling to your sins instead, you're not rejecting a religion. You're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting this church. You're rejecting Jesus Christ. You're saying, I do not need my sins atoned for. I do not need a Savior. I do not need Jesus. I'm good just as I am. Friends, hear the words of our Savior. He's clearly warning us. You're not okay without Him. You're not okay without him if you were on the edge and you're pondering the possibility of life without Christ as being good enough I want to ask you this morning I beg you repent of your self-confidence and receive him as savior you have been kind to me and polite to me to listen to me this morning but hear his call I don't care what you think of me receive Jesus Christ He has compassion for you. That's what drives all of this. He loves you. And that's why this announcement is coming to you today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you're so patient with us.
There are so many who have been brought into your kingdom here this morning who can testify that you were so, so 